Hi, I'm Steve Sensenig. And I'm Rayburn Johnson. And you're listening to Beyond the Box. Beyond the Box is a community of people who are learning how to live beyond the limitations of institutional religion. We are searching out a message that is truly good news for everyone. Through discussions, interviews, group casts, and online interactions, we endeavor to foster a safe place to discuss our spiritual journey. We don't have all the answers, but we are not afraid of any question. So, grab a seat, pour yourself a drink, and join in the community that is Beyond the Box. Welcome back to Beyond the Box, everyone. It is great to be back with you today. And today, I am very pleased to be joined by John Deere. Recently nominated for the second time for the Nobel Peace Prize, John Deere has spent over three decades speaking to people around the world about the gospel of Jesus, the way of nonviolence, and the call to make peace. As a Catholic priest, he has served as the director of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, the largest interfaith peace organization in the United States, and after September 11th, as one of the Red Cross coordinators of chaplains at the Family Assistance Center and counseled thousands of relatives and rescue workers. He has worked in homeless shelters, soup kitchens, and community centers. He's traveled in war zones around the world, including Iraq, Palestine, Nicaragua, Afghanistan, India, and Colombia. He's lived in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Northern Ireland. He's been arrested over 75 times in acts of civil disobedience against war. He spent eight months in prison for a plowshares disarmament action. And in the 1990s, he arranged for Mother Teresa to speak to various governors to stop the death penalty. In other words, this man has lived a life of action in following Jesus' call to peace. I believe that we have much to learn from John Deere and from his actions and passion for peace. Today, we're going to center our conversation around John's autobiography, A Persistent Peace, which I strongly encourage you to pick up. I think you would really enjoy reading about John Deere's life, his thought, and really seeing firsthand what a call to peace and action truly looks like. If you're at all interested in a life of peace and resistance, you are going to love this conversation. So, without further ado, here is a conversation with John Deere. Well, welcome back to Beyond the Box, everyone. It is so good to be back with you today. And today, I am tickled pink to be joined by John Deere, who, as a matter of fact, John, you just got nominated for the second time for the Nobel Peace Prize. So congratulations on that. Thank you. John, thank you so much for joining us on the Beyond the Box. We are so glad to have you. Um, I've been reading about your witness for peace and your life of peace um, for uh, almost two years now and have just been really inspired by your witness, by your ideas. And I have to say, it doesn't hurt that you're from my home state of North Carolina. So (laughs) there's that too. John, welcome to Beyond the Box. Thanks for having me there. You know, I was telling you before we started recording that I I think that stories have a way of conveying the weight of an idea better than teaching or didactic discourse. And that's why I want to spend a good portion of this podcast recounting stories from your life. And hopefully through that medium, you can help us understand what it means to follow the nonviolent Jesus. You start off your story 
all the way back almost in in childhood. But I, I think a pivotal moment is a pilgrimage that you took to the Holy Land in 1982. It seems to be the real the real um, turning point of your life. Can you recount that pilgrimage for us and what exactly happened while you were there? Sure. Well, thank you. I, uh, you know, you're talking about my autobiography, which is called A Persistent Peace. Yes, thank you, John. And it, yeah, it's about 350 pages long, but Ray, I wrote a thousand pages. <laughs> <laughs> I figured if Bill Clinton can do it, why can't I? And, well, can I know, just they, interject they, that if you wrote a thousand <laughs> pages, I would love to have the manuscript of that? Oh, because the, I, it's, it's unbelievable. And I wrote it like a Robert Ludlum thriller because I've had a thousand adventures. And uh, they all got caught, cut, and it, I had a lot of movie offers and all kinds of things. It's been an adventure, but all my childhood got cut. Anyway, um, you know, so the book is so different than what I wrote, and I just kind of tell much shorter versions, and I'll try to be brief, but I'm from North Carolina, and I <laughs> uh, went to Duke University to, uh, you know, I was raised Catholic, to get away from the Catholic Church, mm. <laughs> the Methodist school, or I'm not sure quite what it is, They're officially Methodist, but, and uh, it was, I, you know, I, if you know Duke, uh, this is in the 1970s, uh, the academics are incredible, and the party life is just off the, you know, out of the sky. It's, uh, so it was totally wild, and I thought, well, if you're going to leave the church, why not go all out and not go believe big. in God? Yeah, <laughs> not, not believe in God. And so I tried that. And uh, it was only later that I, I began to realize what happened. You know, I really went into depression or despair, and life didn't make sense. And, and what for me I thought was, well, if there's no God, then why not, you know, kill people, build nuclear bombs, make $100,000. I mean, literally nothing matters. In my mind, that's what... But if there is a God, and there's a good God, well, then everything, everything, it's all or nothing. And I said, well, I'm not going to believe in that. And then I had this friend who, he was kind of an evangelical Catholic, if you can imagine such a thing. He was Roman Catholic, but his family all went to evangelical churches, but they also went to Mass regularly. And this was wonderful, and he's great, and very much an outsider at Duke. He didn't live in the fraternity system. I was complaining to him one day about everything, and he said, well, you know, if you really believed in Jesus, you wouldn't be complaining, you wouldn't be worrying, you would just get on with doing good work in the world. And he turned and walked away from me. He was really annoyed with me, like, you're such a... whatever. I've never heard someone speak like that to me in my life. You know, like... Do you believe in Jesus or not? And I thought, well, what, what, within a month, one day, I was sitting reading a book, and I decided to take a class on Christianity. And I put the book down, and I thought, of course they believe in Jesus. Of course they believe in God. And then I thought, oh, this, then everything is over. I have to give my entire life to God and Jesus. And that meant for me becoming a Catholic. It, it, that's fine, but the point was God. And... Uh, and so I intended to go and have a very quiet, peaceful, pious life as a Christian. Be a good American, pious priest. And before I entered the seminary, I thought, when I graduate from Duke, I'm going to go and hitchhike through Israel to see where Jesus lived. And um, 
I still can't believe I did it. I was like 21 years old. The summer of 1982, my family was appalled at all of this. And the week I left to fly by myself to Israel, never did anything like this before, Israel invades Lebanon in the summer war of 1982. Now, for my autobiography, I researched it. Was I get upset just thinking about it. And who cares about it? Mm-hmm. Nobody cares about any of these wars. We killed 60,000 people that summer, and I say we because it was all orchestrated out of the Pentagon, mm-hmm. and the Pentagon called it, which is full of Christians, of course, the Pentagon called it Operation Peace for Galilee. Wow. I didn't know any of that. I get on the airplane in New York City to fly to Tel Aviv. The plane is practically empty because it's a full-scale war with Lebanon, and, but it's really in the United States. And um, I was completely oblivious. I had nothing but a backpack. I lived in, on the streets of Jerusalem for a month. I was in Bethlehem. I walked practically to Nazareth. My goal was to go and camp out at Galilee for a month, and I did. And I, it was, uh, you know, I'd never been on a retreat, really, or anything like that. And there was nobody there. And that's what I, I try to tell you in the summer of 1982, because <laughs> there was a war going on. It's 50 galleys, 15 miles from Lebanon. Wow. Of course, I didn't know that. I was a dopey kid, completely oblivious. My parents had only known. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I was camping out illegally, literally sleeping a foot by the water. The sun would rise, and I'm, all I had was my Bible, and all I did was read the Gospels. And... I'm really getting into it, and it's beautiful, and, and I'm feeling the presence of Jesus and God, and it's so peaceful, and I make my way to the North Shore. There's a little chapel there on the top of a hill, and I walk in, there's nobody there, it's a little tiny eight-sided chapel, and it says in real big letters on the wall, blessed are the poor. Mm. And then I look around, the, I follow, look slowly around the room, blessed are those who mourn, Blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those persecuted for justice. It's the chapel of the Beatitudes, commemorating the Sermon on the Mount, the commandment to love our enemies. And I was utterly blown away by this. I don't know why. I suppose I had been walking for three months, not really talking to anybody, living in a daze thinking about Jesus, like, seriously, like, I'm going to, I'm just a kid, I'm going to give my whole life to Jesus, I must be totally nuts, but, okay, I'm going to do it, and I'm praying, and I'm seeing these holy places, and I'm feeling lonely one day, and I'm very happy the next, but it all led up to this, and I thought, oh my God, I think he's serious, this is what he wants us to do, to live to be at to the Sermon on the Mount, this had never occurred to me. And I walk out on the balcony, and I'm like looking at the sky, and I'm like, you mean I have to live the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount? We all have to live the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount? He doesn't want us to be pious priests or pious people, you know, with my own nice, pious, spiritual... He actually wants us to do this stuff. Mm. And I remember thinking... But isn't that what the Pope should be doing, or some bishop or some minister? Like, you want me? And I really realized that the gospel is personalized for each one of us. Mm. 
then I thought, well, okay. I mean, I was, this realization was one of the, well, it changed my whole life. It changed my whole life until today. Uh, you know, that I have to do these things. It doesn't matter whether I want to or not. That's what you're, we are Christians, disciples of Jesus, are called to live the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, to take his word seriously. And we're taking everything but the Sermon on the Mount seriously, mm. which, he, which he never said anything about. Most of the stuff we talk about, there's a lot to say in the Sermon on the Mount. Gandhi read the Sermon on the Mount every morning and every evening for the last 47 years of his life. Wow, wow. He's not even a Christian. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He said it's the greatest teachings of nonviolence in the history of the world. I want to be a person of nonviolence, so I have to go read my handbook. So I thought, okay, I'll do this, you know, if you give me a sign. And basically <laughs> just then, all these is three, I think there was two or three big black Israeli jets fell from the sky, breaking the sound barrier. So suddenly there's boom, boom, boom. And there are these jets flying over the Sea of Galilee, and they fly right over me and drop all these bombs over the Sea of Galilee mm. at the border of Lebanon. And, um, and I, uh, I was like, right, I'm going to get with the program. And uh, here I am today. I don't claim to have lived the Beatitudes or someone on the mountain. I'm claiming that I'm trying to, though. Mm. And um, everything I have done has come from those days and leading up to that moment. I mean, and you know, it took me a few days to realize I had been seeing jets over the Sea of Galilee every hour. I was so used to sonic booms mm. and uh, the breaking of the sound barrier, which is what happens over there. I've heard, I've heard it since you know, subsequent trips, because war is everywhere now. But um, there was just a moment where I kind of opened my eyes, like just in case God appeared. And this is what my reflection on that is, that when I opened my eyes, I saw the reality of the world, which is the mass murder of our sisters and brothers around the planet. In the name of God, in the name of Jesus, and even at the place where he said, blessed are the peacemakers and love your enemies. I really invite people to ponder that image of warfare at the Sea of Galilee, at the place where Jesus said, these spectacular teachings of nonviolence, and I invite people to go back and read the Sermon on the Mount. You don't need to go there and see warfare to say, right, well, if, if you're really going to follow this guy, he just wants us to do what he says. He doesn't doesn't care so much about praise and worship, actually. And he mm-hmm. says, actually, that gets God even more upset. If meanwhile you're running Auschwitz or Los Alamos or supporting bombings or executing people on death row, you know, it doesn't matter to God. That, he that's wants the us thing. to do that's the thing, John, what you're saying. I think it's so um, it's so poignant in that so many people, when they think of blasphemy, they're thinking about this, something that we say or not having our, our you know, theological eyes dotted and our T's crossed or not having our doctrine down pat. Um, but really, what more could what, what how could anything be more blasphemous? than bombing our brothers and sisters in the place where Jesus said, love your enemy. That yeah, just, and so wow. any violence is blasphemy to God. You yeah. know, anything that hurts a sister or brother, racism, sexism, violence, murder, war, executions, poverty, starvation, nuclear weapons, environmental destruction, 
that's the blasphemy. And I get this all the time. I'm thinking of, you know, I was speaking to thousands of evangelical college kids once, once a few years ago. And, they didn't care one bit about killing people around the world, but, you know, if I dared say a bad word or just hinted at something, you know, that was just, like, rude or uncivil, they screamed blasphemy. And it was, and I, I was kind of... Then I started to test the order, so I agree with you. We're very mixed up. That's why it's so interesting. Gandhi went back and read the Sermon on the Mount a little bit every morning and every evening because he's saying... This is the teaching. He, and by the way, he wasn't Gandhi. He, he, he was a pretty bumbling, dopey guy. But he was formed by the Sermon on the Mount because he decided to take it seriously. Christians don't. And I think it's a real, real challenge to any one of us who claims to be a Christian. Uh, everything's got to change, but it's all laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, I mean, I could, yeah. I'm now, I've started giving retreats and lectures around the world now in the Sermon on the Mountain, just learning so much more. I could talk about it all night. But I just encourage people to read it. That's the starting point, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Yeah. So, so John, you go away from there with, you, you say in your book that your spiritual life became a mission to disarm the world. And since then, you've spent the last 35 or so years uh, fulfilling that goal of disarming the world. When you went away from there with that mission, what what was burning in your heart? Because I know that you have your your story is really if if it's out there to be done in the name of God when it comes to fighting uh, classism, racism, poverty, nuclear weapons, violence. You've done it. Was there a real sharp focus? at that time that you said, this is going to be what my life is about, or was it violence in general? Both. Um, it was, you know, trying to live up to the commandments of the Sermon on the Mount, and, uh, you know, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are thirst for justice, offer no violent resistance to one who does evil. That's the actual translation from the Greek. Offer no violent resistance to one who does evil. They were forbidden violence. Um, love your enemies. So, uh, you know, on the one hand, I've been staying with those texts every day. On the other, you know, after seeing, well, any, any, all violence all my life, but particularly war, where it's actually systemic, organized, institutionalized, structured, national mass murder. Mm. I have been working to stop it because it's so often done in the name of God. Or maybe it's always done in the name of God, in the name of Jesus, who could not be more gentle or nonviolent. I spent the afternoon with the poorest people in the country out of Pueblo, here in New Mexico, at the foot of the mountain of Los Alamos, where they build every single nuclear weapon in that country. And these people have lived there for thousands of years. Their land is poisoned, their water is poisoned, they have high cancer rates. And I'm trying to learn from them about resisting. And so, uh, you know, I hadn't thought of it that way. I was entering the Society of Jesus, a Catholic religious order, about two weeks after I got back. I was on fire. I was like, wow. Remember, I was going to be a pious priest, and now I've got the Sermon on the Mount. And I was just like a secretariat let out of the Kentucky Derby and ready to go. And 
the first hour I was there, I was told off. And uh, it's been like that ever since. It was such an education. And I just keep getting knocked down and get up and say, okay. And, you know, the fire is to try to, you know, be faithful to this and to talk about it and to work for justice and to make peace and to actually practice the love of your enemies. And um, so I realized, you know, from very, very quickly, well, from my family to the Jesuits, within weeks that, they all thought I was completely nuts. Mm. And uh, I said, That's, that doesn't matter. I mean, look at the story of Jesus. They, everyone wants to kill him, and then they eventually do. So I realized I'm on my own. I tried to round up a group of friends, and I did. And we started to teach ourselves. And I read everything about Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Dorothy Day, Daniel Philip Berg, and Thomas Martin. I could find all your greatest peacemakers of the last century. And I actually claim to have read everything those people have ever written. So, <laughs> I so really do. And, and then I started writing books and going demonstrations and getting arrested and it's been downhill ever since. So, so let's talk about that, John, especially your relationship with Dan, Dan and Phil Berrigan. Um, a lot of our listeners are probably not going to be familiar with Dan and Phil, although they're, they, have uh, been well-known, especially during the Vietnam War era. Can you kind of recount for our listeners just a a brief synopsis of who Dan and Phil are, and then maybe talk about how they've impacted your life and and your witness for peace? Yeah, so uh, I hope people like saw the movie Selma and are studying Martin Luther King. He's the most important Christian of our time, and uh, he leads the civil rights movement against segregation, but then the Johnson administration starts the war in Vietnam, which eventually we killed 3 million people. We, the people of the United States, killed 3 million people. And 55,000 of our soldiers were killed. But actually, about 125,000 who came back committed suicide. Wow. So, uh, wow. which, which is now normal now. A lot of vets come back and kill themselves. Because war is insanity. So, there's never been... There had never been, there had never been a well-known priest or minister against war in the United States. Wow. That is hard to fathom, isn't yeah. it? So that's why people need to do their homework if you don't know about these movies. So the, there's Martin Luther King, and he's got, this, he's got this incredible circle of friends. A lot of them are my friends. And uh, the Berrigans are on the edge of that, and they are involved in civil rights. They're two well-known Catholic priests, uh, brothers, in their 50s and the 60s, and they start really organizing demonstrations against the Vietnam War. Now, nobody's... There's a lot of young people doing stuff, but not tons. By 1968, the Berrigan brothers, these two priests, with seven others, walked into a draft file office in Baltimore, and t- just walked into the office in the middle of it with boxes, took out all the files of the draft cards. Every one of those persons was going to go off and kill in Vietnam and be killed. Took out everyone in the office, probably four or five hundred. Walked outside to the parking lot where all these TV crew was, the CBS Evening News. Poured homemade napalm on the paper, wow. paper and burned it. Wow. And they, they said, we are the Acts of the Apostles. And Daniel Berrigan issued a statement 
you know, everybody was mad at him, but the statement read, our apologies, good friends, for the burning of paper instead of children. We oh could not no help uh, do otherwise. For the burning of paper instead of children. We're burning children by the hundreds of thousands with napalm. This is Christians, U.S. Christians, burning children with napalm. And they, Dan and Phil burned the draft files and faced life imprisonment. They were found guilty. They got six years. And then 1970, the war is worse. Richard Nixon's very close to using nuclear weapons on Hanoi, wants to vaporize a million people. And uh, so instead of turning themselves themselves in for prison, they go underground. They just disappear. And Dan and Phil, Dan... (laughs) Now they're on the cover of Time magazine. They're on the front page of the New York Times every day for years. Wow. We've, we've never had... You've never grown up with this. You don't know what it's like to have... I mean, Dan is like St. Paul or St. Peter. Yeah. Like this... I mean, a Billy Graham. I mean, the preaching is one thing, but somebody who's scaring the hell out of the government. like In the, the face empire. of the empire. Yeah, yeah. And meanwhile, we're bombing and killing Naples. I mean thousands of people every week and it's all church people going along with it and suddenly these priests are the front page of the paper, every paper in the country and Dan would show up at a church and give the sermon unannounced and then secretly have press there and then he would disappear and the FBI was chasing they finally caught up to him and they both went and did many years in prison and they came out and started working on nuclear weapons and that's when I met him in 1980 along with um six other friends this time they walked into a big nuclear weapons factory in Pennsylvania are you ready they walked in they said the Holy Spirit's going to take care of us so they just walked in no security they walk into the room with the nuclear bombs they take out hammers and start hammering on the nuclear bomb Hmm. and they leave banners that read quote the prophet Isaiah one day they shall beat their swords and plowshares and study war no more now, this is the first plowshares uh, yeah, action, isn't yeah, it? the first one, and the first one in history. Wow. So you could argue it's the first people ever... I mean, if you want to be a literalist, fundamentalist, <laughs> take the Sermon on the Mount, literally. Take Isaiah, literally. But yeah. nobody wants to do that. They, they were the first act of nuclear disarmament in history, and maybe the first act ever in the history of Christians to take Isaiah seriously, and they faced life imprisonment again, they were on 60 Minutes, they were front page of the New York Times, and there have been a hundred such actions since then, and I did one. Now, I met Dan and Phil in nineteen early 1980s, and, you know, they're my teachers ever since. And uh, Dan is 93 and really dying now in an infirmary in New York, and Phil died in 2002. I've edited five books of Dan's writings. He's written 60 books. He's done. He's been in every country of the world. He's spoken to a million people. Now he's almost completely forgotten, and yet he's one of the greatest Christians of modern times. And I hope people will go and look him up, Daniel and Philip Bergen. I mean, if you want to grow into what I consider radical Christianity, there's Dan and Phil Bergen, you know. Well, more and more I'm coming to the conclusion, John, that... You know, there, there's a lot of things that are looked at as radical theology right now. There's a, there's a huge movement in radical theology that gets into some, you know, more radical ideas when it comes to theology. But I don't think there's much more radical than actually acting on the Sermon on the Mount, not theologizing that's about it. That's the whole it, but, point, really. Yeah, that's the yeah. whole point. And you read the last three 
sentences of the Sermon on the Mount, which Gandhi read every single day. Hmm. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Hmm. It's the most heartbreaking question in the Bible. And Gandhi, now remember, I, I've, I have read God. I've read the 100 volumes of the collected works of Gandhi for the book of Gandhi I did. He, uh, he used to write that to all his Christian friends. I go, how, how can you guys claim to be Christian, but you're not part of the Sermon on the Mount movement. Mm. And um, it means action. And action means the cross. And the cross is civil disobedience and going to prison and going... I was just in Afghanistan with Shane Claiborne, going to Afghanistan and facing getting killed because you're doing what Jesus said. You lo I love the people of Afghanistan, the people mm. of Iraq. They're far better Christians than we are. We're the ones killing them. And uh, you get in a lot of trouble. But, but, you know, everything else is just baloney, to be polite. Just baloney. Hypoc I mean, you know, it's why, you know, I mean, what is the church? Just a big game that we're going through? Or is it a Broadway play? We're trying to have really great music. Wow. It's just, just a great show. No, it's life and death. Jesus wants us to end all the killing and suffering and justice. And you know what? When you do these things, things happen. And you know what else? You get really blessed. Wow. And by wow. blessed, I mean you get to meet the greatest Christians on the planet, which is what happened to me. You know, so, the greatest people. So, John, let's let's get into where where the actions began for you, because your your life changed that day at the Sea of Galilee. And since then, you've been involved. You, you've been arrested over 75 times. You've served time in prison. You you have, when I think of the word radical, I think of people like you and of Jim Douglas, who have also had on the podcast. And I, 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 this, this is why I want to tell your story, John. This is why I want this podcast. I want people to really, when we talk about action, I want people to understand what you've actually done, because this is not just another episode where we're theologizing or where we're, uh, you know, espousing better theology or good ideas, but it's about things that you've actually done. So that the, the first action that, that I saw in the book was your first protest at the Pentagon, where you staged a die-in with a group of people. And you said that you would never, after that, you would never find satisfaction in scripted life again. Talk about the die-in and what that was and what that protest at the Pentagon was all about. Wow. Well, you know, I just, when you use a big word like theology, it just knocks me off the loop. Just to say, you know, I've done a lot of graduate theology, two master's degrees and kind of a master's in philosophy. And uh, I love theology. <laughs> I read every, I mean, just the theology maniac. And it's all baloney. If you're not wow. acting, it wow. doesn't doesn't matter, you know. And so you can then become what a Nazi theologian or a great theologian, like a white Christian running apartheid. But you really got your theology down. Mm. And uh, so when I ended up later on in prison, everything I learned uh, kind of went out the window. I learned much more about God, which is what theology is study of God, and Jesus in prison and in war zones, and in graduate school. I'm not putting people down. I'm just saying, if you're really interested, just go to the margins and, and start doing this stuff. It's so much more life-giving. Well, I met Philip Berrigan, and, and 
a bunch of his friends. This is the fall of 1982, and they said, hey, we're having our annual Christmas protest at the Pentagon. I come along, and I went, and fear and trembling, I'm like 22 years old now, and you know, in those days, you just walk right into the Pentagon, you walk all over it, you walk up into the Secretary of Defense office, and I'm from Washington, D.C., so this is all normal. My father and my uncle were leaders in the National Press Club. I grew up with people in the Pentagon and senators, congresspeople going to the White House. This was all normal for me. And, um, I mean, I was born and raised in North Carolina, but then we moved to D.C. Well, anyway, so we get to the Pentagon. Oh, gosh. I don't know if you ever done anything like this, Ray, but we just, you know, there's a lawn out in front of the Pentagon by the Potomac River, and we're, there's a couple hundred of us, and it's three days after Christmas, which, you know, in the calendar is the Feast of the Holy Innocents, so Matthew 2, I think, you know, after Herod killed all the children and trying to kill Christ. And so we have lovely scripture readings and prayers and prayer for nuclear disarmament for an war, and then we're going to march into the Pentagon and leaflet. So in the some parts of the Pentagon, it's like a shopping mall and huge hallways, you know, like a, some really beautiful mall. I don't know if it's like that now. <laughs> I'm certainly not allowed in the Pentagon. <laughs> but uh, we went in, and we're staying in a circle. We're going to have some more prayer. And some of the people pulled out these gallons of blood mm. that these nurses had taken from their own veins the night before and they poured the blood on the floor of the Pentagon. Now, blood just goes everywhere. And this is just a sea of blood on the Pentagon floor. And then we're back praying. Jesus, you know, things like, uh, this is my blood poured out for you. Do this in memory of me. Uh, The blood of the holy innocents the blood of all the children in Central America and Vietnam and Korea, 100 million people killed in the last century alone from war. Well, the police went crazy and people are screaming and yelling and the cops are on people and they cut handcuffs and kicking them and throwing them against the war. I mean, against the wall and they're hauling them off and Phil Berrigan is thrown into jail and I'm listening to the texts that we're reading, which often are about blood and life and death and injustice. And uh, it was a wake-up call. You know, the reality of the world is mass murder. The Pentagon, I mean, that was the time, only a few years after that terrible movie, The Exorcist. Evil is not, you know, that crazy movie. Evil is 50,000 people sitting at their computers, really devout Christians with hundreds of Bible studies, daily mass in the Pentagon, planning the destruction of the planet and the death of millions of people for America, for defense. That's baloney. That's not the gospel. It's not the kingdom of God. And uh, so, you know, later than when I traveled the war zones of the world, I was, if you could say, prepared for the reality of the world than seeing blood and people being killed by our guns my sisters and brothers being killed. We were just bringing that blood home and saying, look, look, look at the blood of Christ which runs through the world because of what we're doing here at the Pentagon. Wake up. You can't kill. Thou shalt not kill. And by the way, this doesn't work. An eye for an eye 
you know, a bomb for a bomb will link the whole world blind and dead. It's all going to come back on us. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. So, you know, so the action mobilized me to be a person of action. And I saw, you know, Phil Berrigan got out of jail, and then he would go and do other things. And even if he wasn't converting the masses, he certainly was waking people up to choose to follow Jesus or not. And I think he was incredibly faithful to Jesus. He, I mean, he's like, uh, well, he's like the early martyrs, you know, or Martin Luther King and Gandhi, the Berrigans were. They just, they were arrested hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times throughout their life. And and whether is, the press were there or not. What has struck me, John, about, <clears throat> as I've read about the Bergen brothers and about you and, and people like Jim Douglas, and the one of the things that struck me is is that fruit, for you guys, fruit is not as much the point as faithfulness. Faithfulness to the kingdom that's coming. Um, that so many times, you know, you would be looked at and people would go, well, this isn't effective or you're not making a difference. But at the end of the... Yeah, let me just interrupt you. That's it. Where does Jesus say in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, go and be effective? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Who says be effective? The Pentagon. It's the language of empire. Be effective. Have results. We've got... Oh, there might be a little collateral damage, but we had a successful campaign. That's what Caesar Mm -hmm. said. Jesus is nonviolent. The kingdom of God is nonviolent. It means no more war or killing or bombs or starvation. But the problem, as Gandhi points out, is that to get there, to welcome it, you can't use violent means. Therefore, the means are the ends. The seed is how the end comes, but the seed is already perfectly nonviolent. So, so then you have to do a lot of deep prayer. And then you're reading the gospel, and it makes sense. Only after you've taken the action. If you're not taking the action, gospel does not make sense in the United States. It doesn't. It makes sense if you're a black activist fighting apartheid, or an Iraqi nonviolently fighting the U.S. war. You know, if you're a nonviolent resistor against the empire, it makes sense. Um, so, so, you know, use the word kingdom of God, uh, the phrase, uh, it means for me, as I said, no war, no killing, no violence, no poverty, unconditional love for every human being on the planet. You use, uh, well, effectiveness. Well, once you get involved in this work, if you want to be effective, you want results, you will leave within a few months. Mm-hmm. And that's the myth of the Vietnam War. We had millions of college kids marching against the Vietnam War. The war didn't end. They gave up. And we could talk about how the war did end, because the movement did continue to grow. But a lot of people walked away from the movement. Um, and Jesus is forming his disciples to be like little nonviolent Gandhis and Dr. Kings. And he's saying, you know, place your results, place your hope in God, not in the outcome of your action. It's God's action. God will give you the outcome at God's time. Therefore, you have to be faithful to the work, and the big word used like 25 times in the Acts of the Apostles is witness. Mm-hmm. And the end of Luke, you will be my witnesses. And the witnesses is a courtroom person. Everything is, is about testimony and truth before the courts of the world, which is also the court of God. God is watching everything. We have to stand up and give witness. This 
killing is evil and wrong and blasphemous, and uh, nonviolence is the way of God, and it means love and dismantling our, our weapons. So then you just come into a way of life. And But isn't this what Jesus said all along? And it begins to make sense. Take up the cross and follow me, and it's a journey, and just stay with me. And why are you taking your eyes off me? Why are you afraid? What's the problem? Just follow me and walk. And, and you know, it, it only begins to make sense. And, you know, he breathes on him and says, uh, now you're sent out on the mission. Mm. It's pretty simple. Mm. Once you put on the Gandhian hermeneutic of nonviolence, and resistance to empire, things like that. Well, one thing that I've really learned from you, John, and you bring it out in your book, and and uh, you do this in the context of your time in El Salvador, which I want to I want to let you talk about in a moment. Um, but but you you give a quote by Gandhi that just really struck me because we have so many of us, including myself, have looked at nonviolence as kind of a stance. You know, we, we're going to live nonviolently. We're not going to, you know, support, we're not going to support um, <clears throat> violence in any form in our lives. And yet, it really struck me, this quote that you put by Gandhi, that non-cooperation with evil is as much a duty as cooperation with good. For so many of us, we've looked at nonviolence as being something that that is just a stand that we take for something, but in doing that, you 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 quote, and I'm probably going to completely mess up the name here, but the university president in El yeah. Salvador, Ignacio, yeah, Korea. Korea, okay, he, he you quote him in saying that we have learned in El Salvador that to be for the reign of God means that we have to be against the anti-reign. And this yeah. is what I'm seeing in your life, John, is that you're yeah. you're not just taking yeah. a stand for something, but by but by taking a stand for something, it's necessitating that you take a stand against something. Every Christian has to start learning that. And uh, that was the second probably greatest encounter of my life after meeting the Barricans was the great priest in El Salvador. So let me just step up for a moment and just say a word about nonviolence. So I define nonviolence, if you will, as a a way of life that sees every human being on the planet as your very sister and brother. Mm-hmm. And the deeper you go into the spiritual truth of reality, this does not mean in Christ, out of Christ, American, Russian, sister and brother, every human being. That's the way Jesus operates. The deeper you can go into it, we're all one. God has already reconciled us. Everyone is a son or daughter of the God of peace. You go into that truth, you can realize, I can never hurt anybody again. Mm. And you have to, and then you realize there's about 35 wars happening tonight, 20,000 nuclear weapons, a billion people starving, catastrophic climate change, violence happening to every human being on the planet. There's nothing passive about this. It's active, aggressive love pursuing the truth of our common unity, persistently reconciling with everyone, disarming yourself and everyone, and confronting and resisting every system of violence you meet, that you encounter, and proactively going out. Not only you're not going to kill, you're going to stop the killing, and you're even willing to be killed in the work of stopping the killing. That's the language of the cross. And Gandhi and King explained all that. So 
Yeah, yeah, I'm a big student of Gandhi because Gandhi, Martin Luther King said Gandhi was the greatest Christian in modern history, which, by the way, <laughs> is such a nonviolent slap in the face of all of us Christians because he's saying the Hindu is the only one who followed Jesus. You can imagine the evangelicals and the Baptist church, how, how they felt when he just quoted as saying that in Time magazine. They all hated Martin Luther King. Hey, no, our, we're Billy Graham. We're number one. No, you're not following Jesus. Martin Gandhi is. So Gandhi is in trial in 1922, spacing life in prison for protesting the British occupation of India. It's killing lots of people. And he says that sentence. And uh, it's in the movie Gandhi. People should go back and watch it. And Gandhi is saying that the reality of the world has changed. War is now so unparalleled that we can just, we, can, we have enough nuclear weapons to blow up the planet 20 times over. No, we don't need, need them because we're going to destroy the planet through catastrophic climate change. Everything, what, it took God 15 billion years to make this beautiful place for us, and we're going to just let it be destroyed one way or the other. So Gandhi is saying non-cooperation with evil is as much a duty as cooperation with good. In the past, all you had to do was be good. I'm a good person. I'm a good Christian. And you went about your business. Now, if you're a good person and you're going about your business, you're a part of the problem. Because there's a billion people starving in 35 wars and 20,000 nuclear weapons and catastrophic climate change and people are killing each other all over the world. But you're good. Which means you're doing nothing and you're complicit with systemic evil. So you have to non-cooperate with evil. You have to break from it. That means speaking out, resisting it, and saying no to it in the name of Christ. And when you do that, you're going to get a lot of trouble. Mm. But Gandhi's saying that if you're not doing that, then you're like the Nazis. And the Nazis were really nice, pious Christians. Most mm. of them just go, what can you do? I'm just going to be a good person, and I'm kind of helping. And no. We don't want to be like that anymore because too many people dying. That's what Gandhi taught. So then I go to live in El Salvador at the height of the war, 1985. It's the greatest experience of my life. And I was under the tutelage of these famous Jesuits who ran the big university in this really tiny, poor country, the size of Connecticut. And there were 5 million people in El Salvador. And Oscar Romero, the famous archbishop, had been killed. And the four American church women and thousands of people before then. In the end, they killed about 80,000 people. And uh, I was with these Jesuits, and they had they were getting 15 to 20 death threats a day for these seven to eight years before I met them. Seven to eight years before I met them. Their house, where I had dinner with them, was blown up 21 times. And they're laughing and carrying on, and they're going, this is what it means to be a Christian, John. It's unbelievable. The U.S. was bombing the countryside. I used to watch it all the time. I was working in a refugee camp, and when the death squads came into the camp, my job as the young white gringo seminarian was to go out and talk to the death squads. And maybe they won't open fire on these poor farming families and kill them all because the white American is here. Now, John, let, let me stop you there. The And the death squads, you say in the book that these were actually trained at the School of the Americas. They were U.S. trained 
death squads. All of our death squads in Latin America, all the death squads in Latin America are trained in the United States. That's what we do. We train people around the world to kill and to be mass murderers. We're the best at it, the best in history. Um, well, there's thousands and thousands of soldiers in Georgia at the moment from Colombia. And, you know, we've helped kill 200,000 people in Colombia in the last 30 years. Wow. Did you know that? Wow. It's all going on. Who cares? Well, we're the Christians. Well, we're not studying the Sermon on the Mount. We don't care about the Sermon on the Mount. We care about, I guess we care about sex. That seems to be the thing Christians talk most about. And Jesus yeah. never talks about it. But he has a lot to say about stopping the killing. And so I was out there, Ray, and these guys would come with machine guns aimed at me. I remember once, I was looking, you know, I don't know if you've ever had machine guns aimed at you, and you're, <laughs> no. you're going to be killed. You're going to be killed, you know. That's what this is, that I survived is a miracle. And in the countries, in, you know, the bombs were falling around us, literally. And all the people in the refugees had all lost all their families, and they have so much more faith in Christ and God than I've ever experienced before or since somebody in the United States except for the Barricades. I mean, I've never seen, I didn't know what faith was until I was in the refugee camp. They actually had joy, because uh, they they were living in some kind of post-eschatological resurrection moment that I don't know about, we don't know about here. Well, anyway, I remember once looking down at the uh, machine gun, which was pointed at my chest, and it said on it, you know, had a little smiley face, and it said, Smile, Jesus loves you. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, they're all Christians. They're all kids. They all go to church, and they massacre people. Oh, my So goodness. my first day there in uh, in the university, we're brought up to see the famous Jesuit priest, president of the university. He was a world-class philosopher and theologian. He used to write the pastoral letters of Archbishop Romero. He was on TV all the time, and he's denouncing the death squads in the war. And this is what I wrote in the book, and I really invite people to think about it. Uh, the purpose of the Christian university here in El Salvador is to promote the reign of God. Now, that's the first thing he said, and that is one of the most shocking things I've ever heard, because we have nothing like that in the United States. Uh, imagine, I mean, pick any university, you know, Georgetown University, Harvard. The point is not to make money. The point is to welcome the kingdom of God, which I'm defining as ending war and nuclear weapons. But all those schools work for war and, and nuclear weapons, get most of their money from the Pentagon, if you read it. This guy's saying the point of a Christian institution, of course, is the kingdom of God. It's not money or to keep the thing going or the enrollment or... And I could tell you details about, like, so the psychology department, the point was to help prepare a generation of therapists for people to recover and heal from the war. The engineering was to rebuild bridges, to bring, to bring the kingdom of God to El Salvador. But it's the second sentence that you quote that changed my life. He said, however, we've learned if you're for the reign of God, you have to be against the, the anti-reign. Well, that's what Gandhi said. Non-cooperation with evil is as much a duty as cooperation with good. He's saying, if you're going to be for peace, you have to be against war. If you're for peace and you're not against war, you're for war. So you're not for peace. I mean, it's just kindergarten level. But the bombs are falling outside the window as he's telling them this, and I know he's got death threats, and he's going, so, you know, we're just doing what Jesus said, and 
So we're against the killing. And you know when you want to go, what? We're against the war. We're against the U.S. military aid, which funds this war. The U.S. funds every war on the planet, pays for all the weapons on both sides in every war, including al-Qaeda. They get a lot of their weapons from us. Um, and so he's saying we're against the paramilitaries and the, the 14 families that own all the land and the injustice of it, and we're against the violence of the FMLN rebels, and we're against the violence of poverty and disease, which, by the way, is killing a million people. And then he's got his hands going all over the place, and he's going, we're against violence on all sides, and everyone hates us. Everyone somewhere wants to kill us for some reason, and this is what it means to be a Christian. Are there any questions? Yeah. And uh, I'm still... I, I, any, so, Ayak Korea and five other of the priests were brutally assassinated four years later, my friends. And uh, if you known Christians who had their heads... I mean, they were shot and killed, and then they had this death squads removed their brains and left their brains next to their bodies, saying, you know, if you start to think about this, this is what's going to happen to you. It was crucifixion. And um, I know those people. And that's why I'm working as I am. That's why I spent today with the poor at the foot of Los Alamos, the richest place perhaps in the world, and more millionaires there per capita than any place on the planet. It's in the poorest place in their country, you know, the, res- the reservations below it. Uh, it's the same thing. So what are we going to do about that, right? How do I, how do I help people say, the folks, the point of the church, the point of your schooling and theology is the kingdom of God. And if you're not, uh, that means you have to be against the anti-kingdom, nuclear weapons, war, killing their sisters and brothers, racism, sexism, executions. That's, you know, that's, that's following Jesus so that we can, create a more nonviolent world and help people start recovering love. Yeah. And we can start loving each other. And, and it, love doesn't matter anymore. If Meanwhile, we're bombing children in Iraq and yeah. Afghanistan yeah. and Yemen and executing people. Then we're not people of love. We're not, it's, you know, it's not interpersonal. It's global and universal. See, I'm starting to preach, right? It's not good. <laughs> well, you, in, in my book, John, you have the moral authority to do so, sir, way more than I do. So <laughs> preach on. Um, one thing that, I, that, that just kind of blew my mind is you were talking about being in Nicaragua when the CIA was actually using germ warfare there. Yeah. And and I didn't know anything about this. And of course I grew up, I, I was born in 76. So I grew up really during the eighties, but, uh, and, and of course, you know, I grew up as a red blooded American white male that just believed the, the story of empire that we were the dominant class and whatever the Pentagon did and whatever Reagan and Bush did were right. And, um, so, you know, I, I'm going back and reading a lot of this history now and going, oh my gosh. I, I, and of course, Jim Douglas has opened my eyes in large measure to the operations of the CIA and just how the, really the pure evil, um, of the CIA and, and many of the operations that they've performed, but you actually were a victim of germ warfare in Nicaragua. Can, can you tell a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, you know, Ray, uh, you're no longer a good 
red-blooded American, mm, mm. servant of the empire, doing whatever the government says. You're a Christian. Mm. You're a follower of the non-violent Jesus. And as Paul says, we're now citizens of the kingdom of God. I'm taking that seriously, which means I'm a universal human being. And I see, you know, I, I just, you know, I don't go along with the American government or any government. I don't believe in killing one human being. Yeah. And uh, every president, in all governments, and all wars, and all militaries kill people. That's the point. But meanwhile, we got this guy, and he says, "You've heard it said, love your countrymen and hate your enemies." But I say, love your enemies. And of course, as you know, in the Greek, that's agape, yeah. unconditional, sacrificial, nonviolent love—the love which lays down its life for an entire nation. And another thing we have wrong is. We think that, you know, oh, that's that horrible person down the street. i got to love my enemy. Baloney. It's clearly in the text, nation-state language. Mm. Your country versus another country. Your country has declared that country expendable. We can kill all those people, not human beings. Mm. So that was going on then in Judea versus Syria. But on top of it all, you have the Roman Empire. And Jesus is saying... These people are getting killed and waging war, and the disciples are all for it, too. And, you know, no, no, no. The days of war are over. We are people of universal love. And not only that, then you're really sons and daughters of the God of peace who lets the sun shine in the good and the bad, the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And that latter part has been the most important part of my life in these last ten years. We do this because we are sons and daughters of the God of peace and universal love, not because we're Americans or sons and daughters of America. Well, so there I'm a kid. I'm just back from Israel, and we are waging war in Nicaragua and El Salvador and Guatemala. It's not Vietnam. It's not Korea. It's not Nazi Germany, but it's all these poor people, and I'm working with poor Central Americans in Washington, D.C., and so I asked to go and live in El Salvador, and eventually I fought and fought and fought and went there and had that experience. And I wanted to go to Nicaragua, where Reagan was planning to have a full-on invasion. It had nothing to do with communism or anything. It's just money. It's the same with Iraq and Afghanistan. It's oil and money. And you need, if you're going to be having a whole country based on weapons sales, you need to have wars to sell the weapons and make more and sell more. So we're in permanent warfare. And Nicaragua is in the newspaper every single day. And uh, they have this socialist president, this Sandinista, Daniel Ortega. And meanwhile, the Jesuits are in the, in the government. And they hear wow. all these charismatic things, and, and they're Christians. And uh, there's a priest who's the Secretary of State, a Mary Noller, a lovely guy, Miguel Descoto. So we, these Christians, led with Jim Wallace of Sojourners and Harry Emmy Now, and my friend, the great writer, and some hundreds and hundreds of them, said, we're going to go to Nicaragua, we're going to stand on the border. The U.S. has got these contracts, this fake army paid for, indoors, and they're shooting bombs and gunfire into Nicaragua. We're going to stand there, they're going to have to kill us. Did you know all about that, Ready? No, not at all. Yeah, it's called Witness for Peace. You should look it up. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people went, Christians, and it changed all of their lives, including these prominent people that I'm talking about. And uh, no one was killed, but there were a lot of incidents. 
and it was very scary because you're deliberately going to stand in front of the U.S. Army, which is going to have to shoot at you to kill the poor people behind you. Wow. So I applied, and I got there. <laughs> and the guys for peace said, oh, you didn't come to our three-hour training last night in Binghamton, New York, so you can't be with us. Now, I had been living in the war zone of El Salvador for five months, and I knew a lot about war and death squads and nonviolence at that point. But I, they said, that's that. And so I had a month in Nicaragua by myself, and there was all this stuff happening. And so I went and stayed with the Jesuits in, in Managua who were working in the government. Then I met Miguel Descoto and Daniel Ortega, the president, and all these people. And one day, one of them says, okay, you wanted to come here. We're going up to the, the border of Nicaragua and Honduras, right into the war. We have some things to do up there. You can tag along. So I sat in the back of the pickup truck and lived all day and uh, slept in the floor of a church, as I recall, about a football field from the Honduran border. And I do remember sometime about midnight, there was all this gunfire and shooting, which was shot at the church, maybe toward me, I don't know. But certainly, you know, this was in Jalapa, or maybe it was Ocatal, Nicaragua. And uh, we were going to be there a week, and it was really scary. And I'm kind of by myself because the priest friend is busy, and so I'm just staying with some of the Campesino families and in the village and you don't know who the enemy, you know, the people with guns are, because they're all, they're all poor. The U.S. hires poor people, the countries, and they're all going back and forth. There's no, you know, real border. You know what I mean? Anyway, I got really, really, really sick and was suddenly dying. And uh, they put me on the back of a pickup truck and drove me back to Managua. And I had a temperature of 106. Oh, my. Was losing consciousness, and they brought me to a hospital. And they say, "You have dengue fever." Now I don't know if you heard that was just in um, NPR did a story last week. All things considered, that dengue fever is coming to Florida. Hmm. We've never had it in North America. They never had it in Nicaragua. And I almost died. I was delirious and fever for about five days, and then you know slowly recovered. And a year later, I was back in graduate school at Fordham in New York. On the front page of the New York Times, it said, last year, the CIA released uh, dengue fever through mosquitoes on the border of Nicaragua. Sometime in August 1985, it said, which is when I was there, and that they estimate maybe, you know, 10,000 people nearly died. Probably some did, because I... Well, who knows? I don't even think the Nicaraguan government knows today what happened because there was no health care. I got health care because I was a Jesuit. And uh, it was front page of the New York Times, all confirmed. The CIA did it, and they were proud of it. They were running an assassination school, an assassination manual, and then the Congress barred Reagan from doing that. So he sold you know, the whole Iran-Contra gate. He illegally he broke all the laws and got weapons to the Contras and killed 30,000 people, Reagan and Bush did, and we're still under this legacy of killing. So, you know, 
it was a great blessing and um, to be in Nicaragua, to meet those great people and be with them, and, and you know, to suffer a tiny bit with them. I think that's, isn't that the gospel, too? Yeah. You know, yeah. and to go and stand there. I didn't know that at the time until a year later. And this is part of the journey. You don't know what you're doing. And everybody thinks you're crazy, by the way. Wow. Except for Jesus. Wow. Yeah, I, I'm kind of jumping around here, John. There's just so much. Um, we could we could just... I, I wish we had a nonstop week to just go through everything. There's so, there's so much richness here that I just want to share with our listeners. Um, you were talking earlier about the plowshares action, the first plowshares action, and you actually took part in a plowshares action in my home state of North Carolina at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base with, uh, I believe it was with Phil Berrigan, right? Not Dan Berrigan, but Phil. Um, Can you tell us about that action? And then I'd like to also, I want to get into the trial a little bit, because I think this is going to be really enlightening for our listeners and the injustice, not only of our war machine, but of our, of our quote unquote justice system. Yeah, well, by then, or the early 90s, I lived in California. I'd been arrested dozens and dozens of times. I was already speaking to crowded churches all over the country and written a few books. I was uh, 30, 34, maybe. And, uh, you know, I'd known a lot of people killed in El Salvador. That really changes you. I've known people killed in death row. And, you know, I'm, I'm still, like I am tonight, loving, what does love your enemies mean? How do I do it, Jesus? How do you do it, Ray? And, you know, I, I ask her, I, you know, I went to Afghanistan a year ago or so, and my family was really mad at me. They still are upset. And I said to my brother, who was so angry with me, I said, well, you know, I'm trying to follow Jesus, who said, love your enemies. And we're killing the people of Afghanistan. How are you doing that? What are you, you're a Christian. What do you think about it? He goes, well, I'm not doing it. But I don't want you to do it either. But I said, well, okay. I said, well, well, I'm going to try to follow Jesus. And I, I, you know, you don't have to go to Afghanistan, but you can, you know, support me. And that's life doing it. Well, uh, so going to El Salvador and Nicaragua was one way to love your enemies. But then I thought, you know, we're planning to destroy the whole planet. And maybe one even <laughs> pre-step toward loving your enemies to try to stop your government from killing them. Mm. Well, if you're hanging out with Daniel Philip Bergen, you won't start getting arrested and speaking out against <laughs> death. And after a while, prison just seems like a normal part of life. You know, if you're following... I mean, I, we follow a guy who was brutally executed, Jesus, and meticulously nonviolent for justice and civil beings. And so this is just the job description. So I prepared for 10 years, 10 years to be killed and to do this plowshares action. We had retreats once a month. I prayed through Isaiah and all the Gospels, met with all kinds of people who had been to prison. We did role-play exercises. It was Phil, my friends Bruce, and Lynn. On December 7, 1993, we went to North Carolina, because that's where I'm from, born and raised, and went to Duke. One of the largest key places of the whole U.S. war machine, which is the Seymour Johnson Air Force Base, which houses the F-15 fighter bombers for the Air Force. That's kind of the main instrument of killing these days. And we now have the F-16 used in Iraq. This was 1993. 
do these massive fighter bombers. They carry nuclear weapons. They were used in the first Gulf War to help kill 300,000 Iraqis. They were on alert that night to bomb Bosnia. You know, so uh, there's this huge military base, and, you know, you can't get in. And we prayed, and they're like, well, the Holy Spirit will lead us, because this is the will of God to disarm and love. So we we're dropped off at 3 in the morning. There's a big fence way in the outskirts of the base, and it said, trespassers will be shot on sight. We climbed over the fence or through the fence and onto the base, and we walked for a couple of miles through the woods, four in the morning, and then came upon the Air Force Base, which was like three JFK airports. It was enormous as far as you could see, and there were thousands and thousands of soldiers milling about and trucks and cars, and the whole thing was lit up. I remember Phil Berrigan turned to me and said, while we sleep tight, the war machine barrels on full steam and everything. I never forgot that. Mm. And we said a prayer. And I remember thinking, well, I don't have to be afraid because I've lived through and survived El Salvador. And I've known great martyrs of the church, as great as any. Air Korea. And they'll all be canonized saints one day. So I can do this. I can be killed. And we, we saw one of the big planes that the engine wasn't on, and we walked up to it. We each pulled out a hammer, and I hammered once, maybe twice on the side of it. And then um, we were fulfilling the prophet Isaiah. Someday these people will put their swords into blasters and study war no more. I hope the listeners will go back and read Isaiah too, which is a precursor to love your enemies. It's the same vision said in different ways. Um you know, these soldiers came up to us with machine guns and said, oh, we get it, you're protesters. But we didn't know what they were talking about, and they started laughing. They said, actually, and we said, actually, we really are protesters. And so then they put us on the ground, and they had the machine guns at our heads, and then there were 25 soldiers, and then 50 soldiers, and then 100 soldiers, and 500 soldiers, and then 1,000 soldiers around us. And they shut down the U.S. national war games, which we had walked right into the center of and disrupted. The whole annual war games for the United States, which was happening secretly. So when the young kids said, oh, you're protesters pretending to be, your soldiers pretending to be protesters so that we have to do something about it, what a great idea. No, actually, we really are. We just dismantled your fighter bomber, which you can't nuke some people with now. And they wanted to kill us, and they broke the law by not killing us, too, you know. And, uh, you know, so I faced, I was arrested and faced 20 years in prison. I was eventually convicted of two felony charges, destruction of government property and conspiracy to commit a felony. And uh, I'm as high up a terrorist as you can get in the United States right now. I can never vote again. This phone call is certainly monitored by the government. All my activities monitored. I'm not allowed in many countries around the world, like Canada and Japan. Wow. Uh, and um, the government, you know, I always used to say, you know, nobody takes me seriously. My family doesn't take me seriously. The church doesn't take me seriously. New York Times doesn't take me seriously. The media, but the government takes me very seriously. Mm. Mm. So, uh you know, I, I wrote, uh, I published my diary about it. People wanted to 
see more about it. It's, it's really great. Peace Behind Bars, it's called. And you can get it at Amazon. And it's the day-to-day journal of the whole experience. And uh, actually, Philip Berg and I ended up in a little cell, you know, like 10 by 10. And we never left the cell, basically, uh, in the whole time we were in prison, eight, eight months. We n- let me say that again. We never left the cell. Wow. Wow. We never went outside. There were just a couple occasions of the visitors. Martin Sheen came to see us, and you know, I was, you know, I was friendly with Mother Teresa. She was going to come and see me. But we were in the cell the whole time, and we were in these rinky-dink North Carolina county jails. And eventually, the one we were in, the small one, was so crowded, the warden was scared that something would happen to us because there was so much media about us. In fact, we were in the New York Times. In 2020, the ABC show came and filmed us, and uh, I don't remember what all else. I mean, the mail alone, they'd never had before since the history of a North Carolina jail. Wow, wow. Hundreds of, hundreds of letters a day. So uh, they locked us up to protect us, which I thought at first was great, and I... I still kind of did, but then I got really depressed. The walls came in on me, and it was awful. So there's Phil in the bottom bunk. I'm in the top bunk. There's the stainless steel toilet. This is, the door opens, and the food comes in. Now, Bruce, our third friend, was in the room next door. There was a little tiny aisle between the two rooms. And we, sometimes we could go out in the aisles, and Bruce would come into our cell, and took my lawyer was, you know, the former attorney general under John Kennedy and Johnson, Ramsey Clark. Took him six weeks to get us a Bible. I mean, nothing. Wow. I mean, prison, there's two million people in prison in the United States, and it's torture. And we had years of training in nonviolence, and we were tortured, in effect. And how could anybody going into prison come out not be more violent, you know? That's why this system is so broken. Well, let me, I'll just end with one other scene about it, which I always like to tell people. We, we get a Bible, and, you know, we're, we'll, so we'll, we'll have our worship service. We'll begin with Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 1. We'll read two or three verses, and we'll talk about it, and then we'll have prayer and communion. Okay. We would talk for four hours on three verses. <laughs> I learned more about the Scriptures. It was like the heavens opened up. I've never had experience like it before or since. And, uh, you know, and we got Wonder Bread for breakfast and a little plastic cup of grape juice once a week, which we hid in the toilet, which I always used to joke ferments quite nicely over time. <laughs> and we broke the bread, passed the cup, and Jesus was present in the cell with us. It was the worst experience of my life, and hands down the greatest spiritual experience of my life. I mean, I, you know, so I'm just testifying to that. I don't even know what that means, but I, we were not alone, and it was horrible, and it was great, and it changed my life, and wow. wow. And I'm glad I'm not in prison, and I got out, they, they did, you know, Bruce and, they let Phil and I out. I'm a priest, and Phil's a former priest, and the judge was Catholic, and he was just, he hated us, but he was scared and felt guilty about it. <laughs> he sent the two, no, he sent the two young people on to prison for another year, and the four of us did the same thing. Wow. And I was sentenced to two years under house arrest 
you know, at the Jesuit House of Priests in Washington, D.C., which I always said was cooler than human punishment. <laughs> <laughs> but it was great, you know, and I, I look, you know, what's, I'll just tell you my sins. My great sin is self-righteousness and arrogance, which is baloney. But we just were so full of ourselves. And, uh, but on the other hand, it was really great, and we suffered a lot. But, you know, on the other hand, we suffered hardly at all. You know, we're spoiled, white, educated males. Um, so, I, I, you know, I'm just still reflecting on the experience. You know, it was very profound. Some Something that really uh, just blew my mind and that I was, I was just... <laughs> you, you talk about your book as as reading like a thriller in many ways, and I'm telling you, John, I was going back for the interview and going. I always go back through whatever book I'm interviewing the person about and kind of you know make notes and everything. I kept finding myself the other night just sitting and reading whole chapters again because they were so exciting, honestly. And one of them is the one where the, the trial that actually happened as a result of that plowshares action that sent you to prison. The trial just boggled my mind at the the boldness yeah. a yeah, the, a the yeah. injustice of the system, yeah. but b yeah. the boldness that you guys had in is the face of that injustice. Because uh, isn't that boldness the word that Luke uses in the Acts of the Apostles? Right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, we were very conscious of that. You know, so we walk in. There's the four of us. It's a packed courtroom. Martin Sheen's front row. 20 priests, front row, all our families, all the media. And the judge said, I mean, you know, there's no justice in the United States. The court, the court allows bombing children in Iraq. The court allows nuclear weapons to exist. The courts allow children to starve to death in New Mexico and West Virginia. So that's not justice. So we're not in democracy. We're not in fairness. It just all serves the rich and the war makers. So the judge says... As we begin this trial, the following items are not allowed to be mentioned. And he reads off a list of 15 items. They're all in the book. But things like the U.S. government, war, weapons, nuclear weapons, the U.S. military, military practices, the Nuremberg trials, because you want to have a just defense, you know, like, you know, the Nuremberg trials, or international law. We, we are not violating law. We're a, a, a abiding by international law, which the U.S. signed, which says weapons of mass destruction must be resisted. And, uh, and then he said, and he went on, philosophy, theology, God, Jesus. Oh, my goodness. He actually said that because he'd been reading their literature. Other than that, you can say whatever you want because it's a free country. <laughs> so we took turns and we stood up and said, we are here today in the name of Jesus to denounce the systemic evil of the U.S. government, war, nuclear weapons, killing the Pentagon, and he screamed and yelled and gave us six months in contempt of court and threw us out. We turned our backs on him. Mm. And that we wasn't just our... you turning your backs, but Martin Sheen, the priests, yeah, and, and the... 25 people in the packed courtroom stood up, <sighs> including Martin. They turned their backs. They were all arrested, and we're all friends. Martin, they like, all these friends and we all they all got to come back and we all get to see them and we're all hugging each other and part of it is because we love each other so much we got to be with each other they just wanted to be with us of course I mean, you we you can't i mean this is north carolina what machines is a big movie star you 
got to let, let these people know, which, of course, the judge has to do after an hour and drop all charges. Like, we knew there wasn't going to be any problem for them. For us, it was a big problem. So then we had four separate trials, and the story that I love to tell from the book and elsewhere, well, having lived it, we're having four separate trials, and we're each called in as witnesses, and Philip Berrigan is on trial. He's really famous. He's on, he'd been on the cover of Time, and he's one of the great prophets. And I'm brought in. Now, mind you, I'm wearing an orange jumpsuit. I have a big beard. I am in handcuffs and shackles. I look like the Unabomber. <laughs> I, I, no, no. And it's really scary looking. I look like I'm crazy. Whereas you see these bankers, well, the Wall Street bankers never went to jail, but sometimes you see politicians and bankers in court and all in jackets and tie. But they wouldn't let, you know, it was all part of the way to, this guy is not a priest. Look at him. He's a Unabomber. Uh-huh. And I brought in under oath to testify about Philip Erickson. And I'm being questioned by Ramsey Clark, the former attorney general. The judge is sitting about a foot from me, and he hates me. He's screaming, yelling, you know. And here's, on the other side of me, is the 12-member jury. And Ramsey said, what did you see Philip Berrigan do? And I said, <laughs> you can imagine me. It's in the book. <laughs> I saw Philip Berrigan, I was full of myself, standing up for the human race. <laughs> pointing the way forward by disarming that arsenal, and Phil is rolling his eyes, and everybody's either going, oh, shut up, John, you're ruined, or they're going, oh, yeah, preach, man. And it was great, you know? It was just terrific. It was like the Acts of the Apostles. Ramsey sits down, the prosecutor stands up, and starts screaming and yelling at us, who drove the car that day? Now, uh, I said, oh, I take actions only for myself. The judge interrupts, gets the jury to leave, and starts yelling at me and says, you are under oath. If you don't tell who the fifth person was, your supporter, you're getting another two years in prison. Mm. Um, Well, our supporter is sitting there right in front row, and he's Mm. the one who does all our press work, and, you know, he does three of these actions beforehand, so it's pretty obvious, you know, who our supporter was. Mm. And I am there screaming and yelling at me, the judge and the prosecutor, and I say, okay, I'll tell. <laughs> judge calls the jury back in, and the whole courtroom goes silent, and I could see the longtime activist in the back going, oh, my God, John's lost it. He's going to betray us all. The prosecutor goes, you're under oath. Who drove you? And I said, thank you for pushing me to testify to the truth. And the truth is, we were driven to the Seymour Johnson Air Force Base by the Holy Spirit. (laughs) (laughs) It just came to me in a second to say that, and it was like, but that's the way Peter and John spoke. Yeah, yeah. And the Apostles. And and, uh, theologically, I can say that in all truth. Actually, theology quite seriously. I would have gotten a PhD if I had done. And so the judge, who's no dope, starts yelling and screaming and goes, I don't mean theologically or spiritually. Who was the physical body? I'm saying, I started arguing and I said, you think it's hard to drive into the Seymour Johnson thing? It can only be an act of God. I mean, this is, forget it, it's, it's God who is behind this. Blame God. And all hell breaks loose and um, I'm immediately arrested and thrown back 
into the van and driven back to the cell. And it was one of the great moments of my life. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Holy mackerel. I, I read that. And I it's all that. about in, in nonviolence. You see, that's yeah. why I keep stressing nonviolence. There's no violence in what we did. We didn't hurt anybody. But we are saying these, we've got to get rid of these weapons. You know, and they, by the way, they start saying, hey, the weapons are property. I start quoting Thomas Aquinas to them, the 13th century theologian. Aquinas, the greatest theologian of history, I don't like his theology, but he said property is that which is proper to human life. Mm. Should a gas chamber exist? Mm. You know, should an electric chair, chair exist? Those are, that's not property. Nuclear weapons shouldn't exist, and one day we will dismantle them, and that's the law of God. Anyway, see, Jesus was right. When you do these things, you get to testify about the kingdom of God. And John, hey, how that, are we doing on time and your questions here? Hey, I, I'm good if you are. Are you okay? Yeah, sure, I'm fine if, you, if you're okay. Oh, I'm loving it. I'm, lo- <laughs> I'm loving this. Well, one of the things that blew my mind about the trial, you were talking about the things that they wouldn't allow, and one of the things was the necessity defense. And what you're talking about here and talking about property, the destruction of property and things, um, for our listeners who aren't familiar with the necessity defense, there's the necessity defense. Basically, the classic case is that if a building's on fire, that it's okay to destroy, to, to break a window, to kick down a door. If you can help a person that's in the inside burning, that normally if you were to kick down a door or break a window, it would be considered destruction of private property. But in that case, it's necessary in order to do the greater good, which is to save life. And the judge would not let you introduce the same defense in saying, basically, based on the Nuremberg principles, that you were of necessity defending the human race from these evil nuclear weapons. He wouldn't let you even even breach the subject without being in contempt of court, correct? Right. Wow. So we went and said it anyway and got more contempt of court. But, you know, we trusted and we got out of prison and I'm still alive out and about speaking, you know, about the kingdom and... Yeah, and uh, there have been hundreds and hundreds of political peace and disarmament trials, a hundred postures actions, and all of them have tried the necessity defense, the norm principles in international law. And I would say, let's say even over the last 30 years, a thousand political trials, none of them covered by the New York Times, maybe one or two. Wow. Wow. Uh, only, only one or two did a judge allow that. Now, I'll jump ahead about my last... <laughs> I was going to say my last arrest, but no, a few months ago I was arrested at the White House uh, for protesting Obama's, the Pentagon's current war in Iraq. But uh, a few years ago, I went with a group of friends to the Creech Air Force Base in Seymour Johnson. No, uh, Creech Air Force Base, Nevada, which is the headquarters of the whole U.S. drone program. Mm. And we walked out of the base and gave a letter, and we were arrested, and we faced a year in prison. We had a really big trial in Las Vegas, Nevada. And um, the same thing happened. So it happens all the time. The judge said, you're not allowed to talk about anything but the law which was trespassing. We were charged with violation of trespassing. We can't say anything else. So, in fact, Ramsey Clark was there again. Oh, gosh. He said some funny things about me. Uh, he goes, I've known John since I was a kid, and he's just a big kid. Anybody knows him, he's just a big kid. I mean, we're just all goofy Christians, including Ramsey Clark. <laughs> and it's embarrassing having this said publicly. But anyway, so we're not allowed to 
say anything. And um, so one of us, a Catholic worker, gets up to give the closing statement and says, okay, trespassing. Well, if you're driving down the street, you see a house on fire, and you see a top floor full of kids screaming, and you trespass. You walk onto the property, and you walk into the, and you, you take the kids out, and uh, you try to save their lives. Well, Your Honor, we are the people who hear the screams of the millions of children in Afghanistan and Iraq crying, and we will not let a no-trespassing law stop us from trying to save their lives. They burst into tears, and the whole courtroom burst into tears. Man. It's one of the most incredible moments of my life. Wow. Wow. Yeah. The, uh, John, there, golly, there, there's just so much. I, I, I'm, I'm going to try and hit a couple more high spots, and I, I wish we could keep you for 10 hours, John, because this stuff is just truly... The, these are the stories that, in my opinion, this is why I'm having you on the podcast. These stories need to be told. We don't know. We don't. We don't know. I didn't know for years. I didn't know any of this, and I, I just feel like we need to know as as the church, as citizens of a country of of the of the empire. We need to know these things. Um, you you were the the director of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, and in 1999, this is four years prior to the current war in Iraq beginning. Um, you went to Iraq to see the effects of the of the UN, or really you could say the U.S. sanctions that kind of manipulated the UN into doing it, um, uh, uh, the injustices of the sanctions there and the sanctions that really led to the deaths of more than half a million children. Um, could you talk about that? And so yeah. many of us, all we know about Iraq, for so many of us that are listening, is what the, the official line that we've been given about Iraq. Yeah, so Can it's you all tell a us? lie. Yeah. It's all a lie. All the mass media serves the Pentagon, the culture of war. And so if you're a Christian and you care about sisters and brothers around the planet, you have to go or you have to meet people like me who've been or get onto their websites and find alternative sources because because Jesus calls us to love our enemies. Yeah. And so we've declared the people of Iraq to be our enemy and we kill them. I estimate we've killed 1.4 million Iraqis, most of them children. We're not, but it's probably much more than that. So this talk is about since, those sanctions, like, John, because you're saying that... Yeah, well, I mean, you know, uh, we killed 300,000 in the first war that under Clinton we had the sanctions on, and the United Nations, UNICEF, the World Health Organization, the Vatican, every major organization in the world has documented that you know you you destroy the infrastructure of Iraq, you blow up every water system there is in the country. Mm-hmm. It's a huge country, twenty five million people, way smarter than the people of the United States. Many, the highest number of PhDs in the planet is in Iraq. Did you know that? No, no. Yeah, they're they're very smart, intelligent people. Wow. And the whole hallmark of Islam is hospitality. When we were walking down the street of Baghdad. And people are mad at us if they're not if we don't come in and have a cup of tea. Wow. And we in New York City, you don't look at anybody because someone's going to hit you over the head. You know, if everybody's so mean. In Iraq, it's the opposite, which is the Christian model. Yeah. New York or Baghdad. So, but you know, what do you do? This is what I was asking. So I went to El Salvador, and Nicaragua, to love my enemies. Okay. 
Then I hammered out a nuclear weapon to stop my government from killing a lot of my enemies. Okay, now we're killing hundreds of thousands of people in Iraq, and I better go. Well, if I go, that's nothing. What am I going to do? I fought, and I thought, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I said, I know. I'll raise money with their peace group, $100,000 if necessary, and I'll invite all the living Nobel Peace Prize winners to come to Iraq with me. So I did an all-expense-paid trip. Wow! And so I talked to every single one of them, except for Henry Kissinger, of course. And uh, <laughs> you know, one or two of them, we were so we were we did go, and we were the highest-level delegation to go into Iraq in ten years. Wow. And we were global news in Europe and Asia, except for the United States, where it was totally ignored. Although 60 Minutes was desperate to come, and Mike Wallace, I met with him many times, and he wanted to come, but then the owners of CBS prevented it from happening. Because if you have a priest leading a group of Nobel Peace Prize winners through Iraq and meeting dying children on 60 Minutes, it's going to wake up a lot of people. So that was stopped, but we went anyway, and I only got a couple of Nobel laureates, and we met 10,000 people, we met every major non-profit service group, every major religious people, all the heads of the UN, all those people who were blown up and killed in 2003, nearly everybody I met is dead. One of the greatest saints I ever met was the Margaret Hassan, who was this lovely woman, Muslim but raised in England, who was the head of CARE. And, uh, you know, CARE is the global children's charity group. Mm. So we arrive, and she's got us in the really nice hotel. Imagine the worst hotel you've been ever to. That's the nicest hotel in Baghdad because we've blown up Baghdad a hundred times over. And she has rented out the top floor, and there's food everywhere, and she's thrown a dinner party for us. You remember in November 2003, she was shown on all the TV shows around the world pleading for her life, and, and she was beheaded the next day. Oh. Margaret Hassan, my friend, who had a dinner party for us at the Nobel laureates. Oh. We or we go to meet Saddam Hussein. We end up spending three hours with Tarek at season. Anyway, it was life changing, and we, you know, it was illegal. We were not allowed to do that, and the government never pressed charges against me. But uh, we tried. You know, I don't even know where to begin. I I, I guess it's in the book, but I'll just tell you one story was going to the Catholic high school for girls in downtown Baghdad, which is, you know, bombed out and dust and desert and cars and U.S. soldiers. So scary. And we go there, and uh, there on the lawn, you know, in the dirt field in front of the school, there are all 500 girls dressed in white, in perfect silence, at attention, waiting for us. Mm. Now, this was really impressive, if you've ever worked with high school kids. I thought that was pretty funny, but I mean, it was pretty <laughs> scary. You know? There are these, it's these girls looking tense. And we come up with all these cars, you know, we're like a UN delegation with these prestigious people. And I'm the head of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which is the biggest, best peace group in the whole world. And, you know, I've told recently, I guess, and very involved with the civil rights movement. And they had prepared for us. They learned about the Nobel laureates and me and the Fellowship of Reconciliation. We get out. We're just standing there looking at them because they're all these high school girls 
solemnly staying there. And they all, 500, break into song really loud, singing in Arabic, Dr. King's civil rights anthem, We Shall Overcome. Wow. Wow. This is our enemy. And we stand there. It's utterly overwhelming experience. And then all five of them burst into tears and start sobbing. They're sobbing. And then, like, all at once, they come to their senses, and they charge us. And we're each surrounded by girls. And I was surrounded by a hundred girls. And one of them cries out. They're all crying their eyes out. One of them cries out her arms in the air. She goes, why are you trying to kill us? What have we ever done to you? And then this other little girl. Now, remember this 1999. You won't remember rock stars then. But this girl said, we like Britney, too. This in terms of Britney. Years, which I never forgot. I thought that was so touching. Wow. I presume all those girls are dead now. Yeah. You know, because we, we've destroyed it. We, you know, we just leveled Baghdad. There's no place to go. Okay. Okay. Uh, you know, we met with the Archbishop of uh, Iraq, you know, this prestigious Catholic guy. We're brought in and serve tea, and we're in his big room, and he's got a whole speech on his chair. You can see he's typed out remarks because we're the biggest thing. He's nervous meeting us and he's starting. He's going to give us a speech about the effects of the sanctions and he puts the papers down and he bursts into tears and starts sobbing for 15 minutes in front of us. And he goes, please tell everybody to stop killing us. That's all he said. And he is prepared for months to give a speech to us and he's sobbing. All those people are dead. We killed them all, and we're still killing them. And what does this mean? I mean, and meanwhile, what does Jesus think of us? What does God think of us? And I just invite, again, everyone who's listening to, you know, just drop everything you're doing with your life, change your life, and get with the work of ending war and poverty and killing the nuclear weapons, and and go farther into the Sermon on the Mount, you know, into nonviolence and peacemaking. So, John, on that note, there, there's so many, there's so many stories we could go into. There's, there's, uh, we've just barely, we've barely touched the iceberg with, with the, the, the experiences that you've had in your life with, with you calling us to a life of peace and, and following Jesus. You, you talk about in the book that there were, that there were three steps to peace to claim the divine love, to, to embrace God's unconditional love, to view each person as our brother and our sister. And from that vocation of love to work for a new culture of peace and nonviolence. Can you talk about each one of those things? And maybe in your own life, I, I know a huge part of beyond the box has been the idea of embracing the unconditional love of God, that there really are no strings attached and the temptation, John, I know when, when I've had people like Jim Douglas in the past, I I know that there's certain people that will be listening right now that think, man, this guy, John Deere, he's so, he's so sun go, so gung ho. He's so passionate, but simultaneously they think to themselves, Basically, what I'm hearing John say is that 
God's not going to be pleased with me unless I go do the do all of these things. God's not going to love me or God's not going to like me unless I go and do all these things because we've we've really embraced this works mentality where we everything's tied. We either have to be all grace or all works and you really talk about the unconditional love of God and do an inner work before we can really not before, but as a means of doing the outer work of loving our brother and sister. Can you talk about some of the practices in your own life or ways in which we can embrace that inner life so that we can begin with, so that we can emerge into step two of loving our brothers and sisters? Well, these are great questions and I don't claim to have the answers or, you know, please, you know, I, I, I would not tell people to follow me. I'm trying to tell everybody to follow Jesus. So listen to my experience, but then go and pray over it and, you know, ask Jesus what he's going to do. What does he want of us? Yes, we're loved unconditionally, and yes, Jesus is very demanding. And, um, I, you know, Bonhoeffer talks about costly grace, cheap grace. It's costly discipleship, cheap discipleship. I think we're just all phonies. And meanwhile, you read in the Gospel of the who are the, the holiest people ever? There are scribes and Pharisees. Man, those guys are fasting twice a week. I don't do that. They know the scriptures inside. Now they're praying all the time. Everybody looks up to them. They're so powerful and prayerful. And they kill Jesus. Mm. They kill a lot of people. And they wanted to stone the woman right there, even in the sanctuary. So the problem with thinking we're doing a good job is we end up becoming like the religious authorities of the gospel. Mm-hmm. So um, so this question of the call to discipleship, and what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, he's saying, I'm going to Jerusalem, and you've got to come with me and take up your cross. I think the cross is active, nonviolent resistance to empire and the culture of violence and death, mm-hmm. and practicing resurrection now and knowing that our survival is already guaranteed, and not being afraid, and loving everyone. And I didn't make any of that up. It's all right there in the four Gospels. Yeah. I'm just saying it. And if you hung out with the Barricans in A.R. Korea, new people killed, and it's been, you know, time in prison, this stuff is like a no-brainer for you. I don't claim to be doing this. I just can talk about it, though, because uh, I talk about it so much. So, uh, yeah, I like that, you know. Blessed are the peacemakers, they are the sons and daughters of God. I have a brand new book out last week called Walking the Way, Following Jesus on the Lenten Journey of Gospel Nonviolence to the Cross and Resurrection. And I always wondered, where did Jesus start? And the turning point is clearly by the Jordan River. He hears, you are my beloved, and he accepts it. He's the only person in history who ever said, okay, I'm going to be the beloved. And he goes to the desert, and the temptation is, oh, yeah, prove it. Get some results. Let's see you do something. Or if God's really going to take care of you, let's test him out. Or here, I'll give you the whole world. And we, that's all violence, power, the temptations of violence. And he says, no, and be faithful to the identity. So blessed are the peacemakers. They are the sons and daughters of God. Love your enemies, then you're the sons and daughters of God. Whether you feel it or not, whether you have a conversion moment or not, to be a Christian is to sit in the presence of God and let God love you. Nobody wants to just be in relationship with God and let God love us like you would over your two-year-old baby. Oh, I love you so much. 
You know, and God is a trillion times more loving, and none of us want to be with God. And none of us want to claim that identity. And that's what I was talking about. And the more over time you have to sit with God in quiet prayer every day, I think in solitude is the only way. That's what the ancient Christian mystics and saints and contemplatives all said, up to Thomas Merton. Then you begin to feel it. It's not even... It's beyond... I don't know words like faith or belief. It's you're living with God in love, and it's nice to have someone love you, especially when most people are mad at you, you know, because you're for peace, which you'd think they'd want to give you, you want to get a Nobel Peace Prize for, but no, that peace, most people want to kill you. So that's the first thing: is every day just returning and letting God love you. And once you're being loved, you're being disarmed. All the violence and junk inside you, you get the. It's, you can start letting it go, and you can start forgiving people who hurt you, and then you start feeling more universal compassion and universal love, and and then you want you see all the suffering in the world, and you get up, and you start going out to help and serve. And um, Dorothy Day always told the story of, you know, she's serving the poor, and I'm sitting in my house one day and looking out the window, and this truck comes down the road and runs somebody over. It keeps going, and I go out and help the poor person. The next morning, I'm having my breakfast. There's two old ladies on the street, and the same truck comes by and runs them over and keeps on going. And the next day and the next day, and after a week of watching this truck run over all these people, at some point, you get up and realize you have to find that truck and stop it Mm. from running people over. That's that's a parable she's told to talk about our, our work for justice. It's beyond charity. There are too many people being mowed down and killed. And if you're a follower of Martyr Jesus, you have to be part of that. Um, I don't know if that gets to question. Yeah, gosh. I forgot what else you want. We, we were just talking about the, the, the three steps, and I think you've definitely, you've definitely hit on the first two, especially in that embracing that, that love of God, embracing that oh, position yeah, so- as the beloved. Yeah, so for me, you know, I take quiet time every day. And I, uh, you know, pretty much have done that every day since, for 35 years. And it's not, there's nothing noble there. I would be crazy or completely crazy if I didn't do that. Because the world is so horrible and all-consuming. And, uh, you know, to sit in peace with God is very healing. And then you get energy to get up. Secondly, I try to uh, be with friends. So I encourage people to be with other like-minded, peace and justice Christians. Go and find them. No one's going to invite you to do it. Go to the Catholic worker. Go to Sojourners-type groups. Go to Pax Christi or any your local peace and justice center, Christian or not Christian. They're doing what Jesus wants. You want to be with like-minded people. So when you're having a bad day, they'll cheer you up. And when someone there is having a bad day, depressed or despairing or afraid, you might be having a better day, and you can cheer them up. So community. And then thirdly, action. I'm always doing something. I knew, um, forgive me for being such a big name driver, but the great leader of the farm workers, one of the great apostles and saints of our time, Cesar Chavez. And I said to him, well, you know, what do I have to do and what should I tell people to do? And he said, without missing a beat, he started pounding his fist. 
public action, public action, public action. Mm. Mm. The rest of your life, you have to be doing some public action for justice and peace. For me, that has always meant I have some ordeal coming up, mm. and I'm just recovering from some ordeal. I've been in and out of court and jail since 1984. Wow. Never, never stop. So I'm always in and out and preparing for stuff. And then I have some <laughs> traumatic event lying awake, or I'm just recovering. And I was in Afghanistan, and right now, you know, I was arrested at the White House in the fall. And now, well, I travel a lot around the world, and I don't really like it. But what are you going to do? You have to do it if you're going to be on mission for Jesus. And, uh, I can't get into what I'm working on right now, but it involves governors, lots of media, and my the main project of my life is campaignnonviolence.org. I hope everybody will look that up. It's a project where we're planning for hundreds and hundreds of demonstrations all around the country in September, the week of September 21st, International Peace Day. We did it last year. We had 250 demonstrations in all 50 states. Connecting the dots on all issues, war, poverty, racism, environmental destruction, nuclear weapons, and for Dr. King's vision, the new culture of peace and nonviolence. People marched in Wilmington, Delaware, Vermont, Florida, Mississippi, Texas, all over California, Alaska. We're going to do it again. And we're having a big conference in Santa Fe on nonviolence, August 7th and 8th. Reverend Jim Lawson, Dr. King's great friend, my friend. And we're going to be back at Los Alamos having the vigils there, no. sitting in sackcloth and ashes. That's why I was up there today working on that. That's coming up in about five months. So what I'm saying is, you know, the meditation, community friends, Christian friends who will support you on the journey of the cross, and some public action for justice and peace for the human race, for our sisters and brothers. Otherwise, you know, I don't know how you're following Jesus. Jesus was acting every other minute. You know, every second of Jesus' life was like a plowshare's action. Mm. Mm. You know? Mm. Wow. John Deere, wow. <laughs> you have given us so much. You've shared so much of yourself with us. And and I just want to say thank you. Thank you for your your life, your witness for peace. Um, and thank you for taking time to share this with our listeners. Uh, you're, you're, you're an inspiration. Um, you're a challenge. And uh, I, I just appreciate your heart, brother. Well, thanks so much for having me on, Ray. It's been a pleasure. And it's kind of strange talking about myself and my stories. But uh, thank you for listening. Uh, I urge folks listening to check out the website campaignnonviolence.org maybe come to our conference in New Mexico in August or you can read about me at johndeer.org and I would really appreciate it if folks got some of my books especially my books on Jesus and, uh, and or gave them to ministers and priests to share my work and, and stories that's a big help people can help me that way and uh, God bless everyone, and I, I encourage everyone to just let's keep doing what we can for peace and justice and practicing the nonviolence of Jesus. So thanks for having me on, man. Wow. Was that incredible or what? I mean, I could talk to John all day, 
his stories are just mind blowing. I mean, I remember as I was reading his book, A Persistent Peace, just time after time, I just kept being blown away at just his boldness, his courage, um, and just his commitment to peace in the way of Jesus. Fascinating individual. Uh, I've never met a more passionate person about Jesus's call to peace. And I really want to encourage you, if you enjoyed what was in today's conversation, you should go pick up the book, A Persistent Peace, which is the autobiography uh, of John's life and his witness for peace. Um, Even as I was preparing for this interview, I was going back and reading parts of the book in order to kind of arrange questions and, and ideas that I wanted to bring out. And usually when I do that, I find myself just reading the parts that I've highlighted or the notes I've made in the margin. But I found myself as I was doing this, I was rereading entire chapters of the book because they just draw you in. You just start reading one of these stories and you can't quit. I mean, they're just so good. As John was saying in the in the uh, conversation just now, there's been several Hollywood producers that have actually approached him to make his life into a, a movie. So it just tells you kind of how fascinating a life this man has led and how passionate he is for peace. John, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. I just feel privileged to actually speak with someone who has a heart for Jesus like you do and who really has given his life to peace and nonviolence in the way of Jesus. Thank you so much. If you're interested in visiting um, John's website and finding out more about him, I want to encourage you to visit johndeer.org. That's J-O-H-N-D-E-A-R dot O-R-G. He's actually got tons of good books, tons of material for you to read and to listen to. His two newest books, uh, one is called Walking in the Way, which is a book on the Lenten journey. And before that, his newest book, which is kind of, I think, his magnum opus, is a book called The Nonviolent Life. So be sure to check out those as well. John is heavily involved also in something called Campaign Nonviolence, which you can find out more about at Campaign Nonviolence. Dot org. This is the website of Pache Bene. Um, lots of good resources there and lots of ways for you to get involved. You, you might have asked yourself after you've listened, listened to the podcast for a while, Ray, Steve, what are some ways that I can get involved in living a life of peace and resistance and nonviolence? Well, this is a good start. They actually have all sorts of um, ideas, seminars, direct actions that you can take. And as a matter of fact, I believe it's in September. Um, you'll have to check the website just to double check, but I believe it's in September. They actually have a week of action planned where they're having all sorts of different nonviolent actions, resistance, protest happening all over the country. So be sure to check that out at campaignnonviolence.org. Um, but one way or the other, connect with John Deere. I think you'll be glad you did. Uh, this man has really lived what he preached. He's um, along with someone like a Jim Douglas. He's one of the only people I know who I feel like there's a complete consistency between what he believes and what he does. Um, I can't completely say that for myself, though I'm hopefully working on heading in that direction. But John Deere inspires me, and uh, I think he'll inspire you too. So go check all that out. Make sure to visit us on beyondtheboxpodcast.com, and uh, we'll give you more ways to connect with us right now. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Box. 
We would love to connect with you online, and we have several ways for you to add your voice to the Beyond the Box community. To become a part of our Facebook community, send a Facebook message to either Rayburn Johnson or Steve Sensenig with a request to join. This group is a safe place to talk about your journey and to think through your walk with God. While you're there, you can like our Facebook page to receive updates on new podcasts and happenings at facebook.com slash beyond the box. You can also visit our website, beyondtheboxpodcast.com, where you can hear all of our previous podcast discussions, submit ideas for future episodes, check out our blog, and even call us to leave your audio comment or idea. Look for the Call Me widget on the right-hand side of the screen where you can enter your name and phone number to have our answering machine call you, or you can call us directly at 626-24-NO-BOX. That's 626-246-6269. However you choose to connect with us, we just hope you do. You are a welcome part of the community that is... Beyond the Box. Beyond the Box. Beyond the Box. Beyond the Box. Beyond the Box.